Are you a mom seeking more consistency in caring for yourself? I am, and I'm excited to share that starting in January, this podcast will be a transparent look at the principles of habit formation applied to daily life as a mom seeking to care for herself. I'm on a journey to find consistency in my own self-care habits because we all know that motherhood can bring new challenges and changing circumstances every day. If you'd like to build consistent self-care habits too, join me for the journey by tuning into the podcast weekly so we can set self-care goals together and build healthy habits. Subscribe and follow this podcast so you don't miss out. Being the mom you want to be doesn't have to be difficult. It's all about building healthy self-care habits, overcoming mindset roadblocks, and finding support. Welcome to Habit Maker Mama. It's the go-to podcast for busy moms who want to care for themselves. I'm your host, Heather Kerwin, and I'm a mother of three, pilot wife, and physician assistant. Together, we are going to redefine self-care so you can be the mom you want to be. Let's transform how you care for yourself starting right now. On occasion, you hear a story that makes you stop in your tracks, one that takes your breath away and leaves you humbled. Kathy Garrett's story is just that. After nearly losing her life during the delivery of her second daughter, Kathy continues to overcome daily challenges to persevere in motherhood and in caring for herself. She defines resilience and an I-can-do-it mindset. This podcast conversation almost brought me to tears in awe of how far she has come today. Kathy is a wife and mother of two. She has been married to her husband, Eli, for six years. She has two girls, Claire and Chloe Ann. Kathy experienced an amniotic fluid embolism during the delivery of her second daughter, which resulted in a stroke and coma. She is spreading awareness and providing a community for other survivors on our podcast, The Birth Trauma Stories. Hi, Kathy. I am just so excited that you're here with us today, and I cannot wait to share your story and to hear your story and to really hear how you've grown through everything. So I'm just glad you're here with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today. I too am always looking for opportunities and feel incredibly honored to share my story and not only raise awareness, but encourage other moms and other parents through their parenthood journey. So I know a little bit of the backstory, having spoken with you before, but I would love to hear your birth story so that we can really get a sense of what has gone on for you. Would you be willing to share that with us? Of course. So I had what's called an amniotic fluid embolism during labor with my second daughter. So I was in a, I'd been in labor for about 24, 26 hours, something like that. And then I had already gotten in the epidural, was taking a nap. And my husband said I was resting peacefully and then literally out of the blue, woke up and yelled, my heart is racing. He goes to get my nurse. They come back in the room and literally as my husband walked back into the room, I kind of slumped over and they think at that point I had a seizure. I have gotten to re-meet my L&D nurse. Her name is Christy. She's the sweetest lady, such an amazing person. She explained to me kind of things from her perspective, how my eyes roll back in my head. I was making this weird posture with my hand. So at that point, she tries to grab for my wrist to check for a pulse and the blood pressure cuff all kind of at the same time and couldn't find the pulse. And then that's when she noticed like what was really happening. Apparently at that point, she 
grabbed me, shook me several times, yelling my name, trying to get me to wake up. It didn't respond. So that's when she, um, the first part is called staph assessment. And that's when the labor and delivery and the NICU team comes. And typically in those situations, it's the baby who is in duress. But in my situation, obviously, I was in duress. But since my daughter was still inside, she was not getting oxygen and blood flow and all of those things. So that team comes and the protocol is to get the baby out within six minutes, not only to save the baby from brain injury, but it helps relieve pressure on your abdominal aorta. And that helps with circulation with CPR to -hmm. try and get the mother back, so to speak. And so after six minutes, they called the Code Blue. And actually, several members of the Code Blue team had trouble even finding where to go on the L&D floor because it's a rarity that they're called to the L&D floor. Yeah, they call the Code Blue. After about a minute or so, my husband said, um, someone noticed that he and my doula were still in the room. And apparently that's someone's job to notice that because obviously in the panic of the moment, you're literally just, you're not even thinking. You're going through your training, basically. Like you're just acting at that point. And so apparently it's someone's job to say, family's still in the room. And unfortunately, there had been an amniotic fluid embolism just a few months prior to mine. And the same nurse was on call. And so she volunteered to escort my husband and my doula out of the room. Because obviously, we as sufferer survivors not only experience the trauma, but our healthcare team does as well. And so at that point, they lead my husband out of the room. She said, we're going to go to the waiting room. And my husband saw a bench and literally just collapsed because adrenaline had finally worn off and he was able to take a breath. The positive is he was able to hear my daughter's first cries. If he had been all the way in the waiting room, he wouldn't have heard them. He was also able to see her on her way to the NICU. So I'm not sure how much more time transpired, but there's kind of conflicting stories, but anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes is when it took to get a pulse back. And at that point, they rushed me to the OR. And the same OB had that other AFE patient immediately decided to do a hysterectomy because at that point, your blood or your body goes into what's called DIC. And basically, it's where your blood is clotting and bleeding at the same time. So the only way to combat that is massive transfusions. And over the course of the next, I believe, nine days, I had four or five more surgeries. I was placed on ECMO, which is the highest form of life support. It's a heart-lung machine that gives your heart and lungs time to rest. And it basically functions as your heart and lungs so that they can rest and you can heal. So after nine days in a coma, I woke up still on a ventilator to learn that I not only had this condition I'd never heard of, but had a stroke and was also on ECMO and unfortunately had to have a hysterectomy. Being in the prime of my childbearing years, my husband and I had always talked about only having two two kids. Having that decision taken away from you was really hard. It took months and months for me to grieve that and work through those feelings of no longer being able to have children. There's just so many complex emotions around everything that happened. I I 
really feel very like emotional just listening to your story because it's just so much that you went through and not just you, but your husband and your daughter daughters, because they both had to go through some part of this yes. and just so many facets, but to be absolutely talking with you today and having a full conversation with you to me is a, a miracle, nothing short of a miracle, the fact that we're, that we're talking. So I just, I feel really emotional for <laughs> just getting to hear from you. So now how much of everything do you remember? Nothing. Nothing. When do you start having memories? My daughter's birth, my first daughter was two at the time. Her birthday was August 23rd. My second daughter was born September 19th. My last vivid memory prior to my coma was her birthday. Wow. And then my next memory is September 28th. And apparently when you're coming out of a coma, it takes several days, especially since I had a brain injury, like your body just shuts down so it can rest on its own apparently. I don't fully understand that. But apparently for a couple of days, I'd been responding, answering questions. But yeah, so September 28th is the day that I actually count that as my survivor anniversary. Wow. It was important to me for my daughter to have her birthday, mm. the day we get to celebrate her and then my second birth, essentially. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, what was it like waking up? And uh, do you remember that moment? Vaguely. Again, it's just really foggy. Um, because even when you're in a coma, you're not sleeping. You don't go through the REM cycles and things like that. So I don't really remember like the moment I woke up. Like probably the first memory I have is I have a, like a couple of memories. Like I have a snapshot of my dad standing at the end of my bed and he told me like that's where he always stood when I was in a coma. So I don't know what day that, but yeah, the day that, that S- September 28th, the, the first thing I remember is my husband asking me if I wanted visitors and him going through a list of people saying, do you want this person, this come, this person to come? And our dear friends, Candace and Ron came to visit and it was such a sweet visit, but even still like I have a small memory of her, like, I, apparently I kept winking at her. <laughs> and since I had the stroke, they were putting ointment in my eye because oh. I didn't have the musculature to close my eyes, apparently. And so she wasn't sure if it was because of that. But then when she got closer to my face, she realized I had hair in my eye. I was trying to get the hair out of my eye, but I had the cuffs on my arms because I tried to pull my tube out. Uh, so yeah, there's again, like it's really fuzzy, really foggy, but there are like small snapshots that I remember. Wow. Okay. This is just so remarkable. Tell me a little bit about the process of recovery. What has that journey been like? And I, I'm sure there are just a million aspects to this, but yes. share what you can and want about that process. Honestly, it's been the hardest thing I've ever been through. I'm now getting a little emotional because there's been so many highs, but probably just as many lows, whether that's dealing with my mental health and discipline or encouraging myself to get up and do my therapies. But overall, it's been, like you said, nothing short of a miracle. They initially said I would be in the hospital six to nine months. I was in the hospital, I say only, only a month in comparison. I did have to go to inpatient rehab for eight days to relearn basic life skills, walking, talking, 
writing, eating, swallowing properly. I even had the apparent, I don't know, weakness in my throat, something. Mm. I just remember these awful nectar thick liquids, disgusting. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, so learn, relearning basic life skills. And prior to my AFE, I was a stay-at-home mom for a year and a half or a year. And then prior to that, I was a nanny and took care of three mm. little girls who were 15 months apart. So to go from the sole caregiver of a two-year-old to not being able to have the strength to stand myself up from a chair was, as you can imagine, incredibly hard. It's literally been the hardest thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. But with a lot of determination, my dad, when the doctors initially told my family six to eight months she could be in the hospital, my dad was like, not Kathy, there's no way. He knows <laughs> my personality that I'm like, I'm going to prove every single doctor here wrong. And yeah, like I said, a month in comparison to six to eight months is truly miraculous. What was the emotional part of being in the hospital and needing to care for yourself, but also being a mom and feeling the just difficulty of being away from your girls? What was this like, that emotional pull of caring for yourself, but being a mom at the same time? I don't, I think initially waking up, it was just going through the motions of the day. Whatever that day brought is what I did. And I remember the first time I FaceTimed with my two-year-old. Obviously, at two, she had no, no wherewithal. She didn't have the maturity to understand, like, mommy is really sick. So they thankfully gave us, a, I think it's called a child life specialist to coach my husband and how to tell her, you know, the baby no idea at all. So that was actually kind of the quote unquote easy part. Yeah. But having a, a toddler at home was incredibly hard. And I even remember when I transferred from the ICU to the cardiac floor, they told me, you can go home straight from this unit. And then they told me, no, you have to go to rehab. And I was so mad. That's probably the maddest I've ever been in my entire life. Because at that point, I had not seen my daughter in three weeks. Oh, wow. And I remember the first time I FaceTimed with her, they put her on the screen, but I think turned off my camera and she kept asking, where is mommy? I can't see mommy. And our toddlers now know how to use FaceTime. And it's weird when they can't see the video <laughs> on Facebook. So I think emotionally, like I said, like those days in the hospital, it was literally one thing than the next. And I even remember an inpatient rehab. I have this dear friend who made me this beautiful sign with a Bible verse. I can't remember the Bible verse on, off the top of my head, but it's from Deuteronomy. And it talks about, you know, the Lord going before you. And I would just literally read that sign over and over a hundred times a day, whatever I had the capacity to do that day, praying over my therapy. And I don't even know that I had the wherewithal to pray. It was just reading that verse. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the way that God intercedes for us when we are sick and can't pray, that we have that those Bible verses to turn back to. And I'm so thankful to that friend who not only brought gourds because my AFE happened during the fall. So she mm. brought like a little basket of gourds Aww. to make my, my room a little bit more homey, but to have that prayer. And I even remember when I was in rehab, I, would, I struggle, I still struggle with analog clocks. Um, but I would just be like, I would look at the clock and be like, okay, that's 10 more minutes until I get to go home. Or that's one more hour 
until my next therapy session, which means I'm that much closer to get going home. And that's the way that I played it in my mind of getting through, especially rehab, because I think I was a little bit more awake by that point. I was allowed outside. I see you delirium is very real. You have no, you have nothing to compare your day to. Like you can see the sun come up and go down, but you're stuck in a room and it's very confusing, disorienting. And and then add a brain injury on top of that. Obviously those sorts of symptoms can pop up with a brain injury as well. So I think like by the time I got to rehab, it, it had been, already been three weeks. So like I said, I was a little more awake, a little more aware. And my memory was starting to come back. I remember there was a picture when I was pregnant. I just hit my second trimester. We planned this massive trip to Europe and we took our toddler with us. And there's a picture of my husband, my then year and a half year old and myself in front of Notre Dame in Paris. It took me, I think it was two weeks. I can't remember exactly a while for me to even remember what that building was, where I didn't remember where it was. I, but it took two weeks for me to rem- remember where it was. And I remember like asking my husband, like, is that in Paris? And then my aunt pipes up, oh, yes, it's Notre Dame. And my husband like gave her the death stare of you need to let Kathy because you're trying to spur those memories, not only after being in a coma, but after a brain injury, it's important to amnesia is very common. So it's important to ask those questions. And even when I was still in ICU, my husband would bring pictures of friends or family members or like they had beautifully decorated my ICU room. I still actually have literally all of the decoration. Mm-hmm. I love to go back and look at it on my survivorversary every year. But I remember that particular picture of Notre Dame. He would bring to me and say, Kathy, where is this? And I just couldn't remember. And then I would get tired and just go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then by rehab, you know, they put it like right under my TV and I would just stare at it. And just be like, okay, you know where that is. Obviously, you are in that picture. So you were there. Where is it? And like I said, it just, and I think like when you're in those moments, you just don't realize what's really happening, if that makes sense. But now looking back, I'm like, that was a really scary moment to know you were in a place and not remember being there. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can't, I haven't been in that position, so I can't imagine what that would feel like. But I just can feel that sense of like helplessness is how I might mm-hmm. describe that of just confusion. like, I, yes, confusion. Now, to me, your recovery is just this remarkable sense of self-care in the most like basic form starting out, you're in for your life and sleeping and just the basics, relearning how to eat these things to get you back to motherhood in your full sense. Was prayer a form of self-care? Tell me some of the things that maybe looking back, you're like, yeah, that definitely got me through. Yeah. So ironically, we have really good friends who I think it was two years prior to my stroke. We have a good friend who was hit by a car while changing a tire. Mm-hmm. And so you can just imagine the injuries he sustained. And he had a stroke as well. Wow. And his, I can't remember. I think it was his wife. His wife, so they have the Jesus Storybook Bible. Is just, it's made for children, very short snippets, very short pages, and a lot of pictures. 
And his wife had the thought to take that to his ICU room and read that to him. And when when everything happened to me, my husband, all of these people wanted to offer support. And he was like, Anna's the one who's going to understand what I'm going through right now. I'm going to call Anna. And he did. Oh. And when she came to visit, she brought me a storybook Bible. And so Eli used to sit there and read it. And when I would get tired, he would just close it and put it on my little table and let me go to sleep. And so in those early days, yeah, self-care was very minimal. I would say since then, it's obviously grown. I've gotten (laughs) stronger, healthier, et cetera. But walking is huge, not only for like your mental health, but your physical health as well. I struggle with symmetrical bilateral movement. So I started about a year and a half ago, started this program called LSET that's helping with that. In some ways, going to my therapy appointment is encouraging and self-care to me because I'm an extrovert. I love people. So getting to see familiar faces and getting to talk with people outside of the house and getting out of the house is self-care. Also, I practice yoga, journaling, obviously a lot of prayer. I'm trying to think of any like self-care that I've started post AFE, the podcast, doing my podcast. It's such an honor for me to give people a space to share their stories and Like I said, I love people, so I love hearing people's stories and finding out what makes them tick. That's incredible. So many beautiful forms of self-care that now you practice and that those beginning core elements of just recovering. I think by definition, when we think about self-care, that really is self-care at its basics, sleeping, recovery, not that anyone would ever want to find themselves in that position of having to go that basic of self-care. But that's what it is. You had to do those core elements of taking care of yourself before you could get back to journaling and podcasting and walking and those incredible aspects of almost icing on the cake after what you had gone through. Now, do your girls you know, watch you do these things and do they recognize like how far that you've come from where you're at? I'm guessing your youngest obviously does not. But That's a great question. I really question how much this has affected my five-year-old. And I question obviously very early on, my medical team did a great job of explaining to my husband what my recovery would look like. Now, me, on the other hand, it took about six months for me to fully understand how sick I was. And I initially thought by that following January, I would be back to being a full-time stay-at-home mom. And here we are over three years later, and I'm still not there. And Lord willing, it will happen. I really struggle with how much this has affected my five-year-old and how much she remembers. She will say she remembers things, but then I'm like, do you remember because you're looking at a picture? And it's hard. I don't think she understands how far I've come. Now she does partake in my therapy. I have so many pictures and videos of my girls doing my LSVT with me or lifting weights with me or going on walks and bike rides with me. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much she understands. And I'm curious as she gets older, if we'll be able to have, we will be able to have more in-depth conversation as she gets older. Yeah. To see how much she truly remembers. 
I just love that she's being involved in your process mm-hmm. as well so that she gets to see these baby steps in you working towards everything come coming to fruition. Is there anything about your mindset that you had to shift pre-trauma to post-trauma? Ooh, that's a great question. I will say I'm definitely not perfect. I have bad days, great days, okay days, just like anyone else. And I think on those bad days that probably the biggest mind shift has been acknowledging I'm a huge advocate for processing your feelings. I am a feeler. I have siblings who are not, and they literally are like, I don't get you because I am such a feeler. But like I said, I'm a huge advocate for processing your feelings. But I think on those days, like just this week, Tuesday, I had a really hard day. I was like crying almost all day. And I cried a lot and worked through my feelings. And then the next day I got up, talked to my husband some more, cried a little less. And then today I got up, didn't cry at all. So I think it's acknowledging that even if you have a bad day, hour, week, month, whatever the time frame is, knowing that there will be another day that you get up and it will be better. And one of my favorite sayings is, you've survived all of your worst days thus far. Mm, that's And obviously that looks different for everyone. The AFE was hands down the worst day of my life. There's no question about it. There's nothing in my opinion, lower than literally fighting for your life every hour. No, mm. not even every hour. Let's be honest. Every Skin. minute. Yeah. Those medical professionals were fighting for my life with mm. me every minute in those early days. So, but I survived them. And here I am to yeah. not only tell my story, but hopefully encourage someone else that you will get through your worst days too. Kathy, we've gotten to speak now together twice really in a good conversation and you are just so inspiring this is like you went to a terrible place you had no pulse for a prolonged period of time and just the fact that we get to sit here and share and you get to take a shower now and we get to have a podcast conversation and you get to journal and go for a walk just this is incredible. This is so incredible. And I hope that anybody, like you said, who is listening, feels that same message that on your worst day, you know, it will get better. You can overcome your worst day. And the power of baby steps. You went from no pulse to here to full conversations and driving. I wanted to celebrate the fact that you're driving again. a huge deal. And just so many of these little wins that we would take for granted on a day-to-day and the fact that these Mm -hmm. are something to truly celebrate and to just rejoice in. And I love that you can give this reminder to all of us to really celebrate these amazing moments in life because they are truly amazing. Any organizations that you would like to thank? Yes, of course. Also, if I may add to your last comment, also even with driving, like obviously that's a massive achievement. It's Still, I still have restrictions. So I'm not allowed to drive my kids and I have to have an adult in the car with me. So like when you get your permit, just because it doesn't look the way that I thought it would doesn't mean it can't still be beautiful. And again, Mm. I had to work through those feelings of disappointment and having those restrictions, but it still can be beautiful. Organizations, I'd like to highlight the AFE Foundation is the only 
foundation that I am aware of that is doing research to find out why this condition happens. Mm -hmm. It's so rare. We still don't know why it's happening and it's killing a lot of new moms. Also, the YES Foundation is the Young Empowered Stroke Survivors Foundation. And they, I attend their monthly support group and they've just been a massive support in my recovery. This is so incredible. What is your favorite self-care activity that you get to do now? Probably taking a bath. Yeah. And I don't remember how long it took me to actually take a bath. I'm guessing at least a couple years. I don't know. I don't remember. But I will say I do remember like you were earlier, you were talking about like the, the small win, so to speak. And I like vividly remember just a self-care act of taking a shower. Like there, it was months before I was even strong enough to stand in the shower on my own and take a shower by myself without being supervised by my husband. And I remember going out into the living room and celebrating with my mother-in-law being like, I took a shower by myself. <laughs> so yeah, I think too, like, yeah, baths are really re not only relaxing, but it's just, you know, time that I can tune out the world and listen to a podcast or read, a, grab a good book and just read. I think sometimes we we find ourselves trying to define what self-care means for people. And I love that you represent that self-care is individual. Like you said, taking a shower was a huge act of self-care that took you a lot of time to work up to yeah. being able to do. And some of us might take that for granted and might mm -hmm. say, oh, a shower, that's not self-care. I should That's just something I should be given. I should just do. But for youth, that wasn't the case. You, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And I love that that kind of shows us we just, we can't define what self-care means to the individual. It is unique to all of us. It's okay. what you get to do and what brings you happiness and yeah. health and makes you feel good at the end of the day. Thank you so much for being here. It's just been a joy and a pleasure and you inspire me and I know you'll inspire so many listeners who are catching this today. Thank you again, Heather. This was just absolutely amazing. And lastly, I'd love it if you all to check out my podcast. It's called the Birth Trauma Stories Podcast. Are you a mom seeking more consistency in caring for yourself? I am. And I'm excited to share that starting in January, this podcast will be a transparent look at the principles of habit formation applied to daily life as a mom seeking to care for herself. I'm on a journey to find consistency in my own self-care habits because we all know that motherhood can bring new challenges and changing circumstances every day. If you'd like to build consistent self-care habits too, join me for the journey by tuning into the podcast weekly so we can set self-care goals together and build healthy habits. Subscribe and follow this podcast so you don't miss out.